We get to the end of 2 Corinthians today, and honestly, as we get into it, I'm going to be talking about the so-called foolishness of God. You see that there on your outline. I couldn't think of, of a better way to introduce it. I got a little clip from the movie Cars that some of you might appreciate, maybe some of you have seen. And uh, so anyway, we'll run this, and this kind of sets up what I'm, uh, I'm going to talk with, uh, with us about this morning from 2 Corinthians. This ain't asphalt, son. This is dirt. Oh, great. What do you want? You here to gloat? You don't have three-wheel brakes, so you've got to pitch it hard, break it loose, and and just drive it with a throttle. Give it too much, you'll be out of the dirt and into the tulips. So you're a judge, a doctor, and a racing expert. I'll put it simple. If you're going hard enough left, you'll find yourself turning right. Oh, right. That makes perfect sense. Turn right to go left. Yes! Thank you! Or should I say no thank you? Because in opposite world, maybe that really means thank you! Crazy grandpa car. What an idiot! Uh-huh. Turn right to go left. Turn right to go left. I, I don't. Um, I never tried that. Just so, so you know, I, I've never never tried to go fast enough left. So I'd be going right. Some of you probably have. I think it's called drifting or something along that line. But anyway, but that's what uh, Doc Hudson told him. Turn right to go left. If you're going hard enough right, you'll find hard enough left. You'll turn your. You find yourself going right and vice versa. Um, Lightning McQueen was uh, a very arrogant young race car, and he wanted to do things his way. And he was trying to make that turn. And of course, as you see in the beginning, he keeps going over into the cactus plant, and and then he sort of half-heartedly tries it toward the end. And as the movie progresses, of course, Lightning McQueen becomes humbled to the point where he actually gives his all to what Doc Hudson had told him. And in the end, not to be a complete spoiler, but in the end, it tends to work out for him. Becomes something that as he commits to it, the turning right to go left actually is something that that the movie highlights and it's sort of a crescendo moment there at the end. But if we're honest, we all are a lot like Lightning McQueen sometimes. We want to do it our way. We want things to be easy. Uh, we want walking with Jesus to bring simple material blessings or, or emotional, uh, I guess, a boost all the time. And, but anyway, all along in 2 Corinthians, Paul was telling them, turn right to, to go left. And just like Lightning McQueen looked at Doc Hudson, they looked at Paul and said, you're an idiot. That doesn't make any sense at all. Turn right to go left. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. At first, we do the same thing. We balk at it. We think it's crazy. And then maybe over time, we begin to to try that advice. And theologically, of course, we're talking about submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ, the one who claimed to be the Son of God, to die for all the sins of the world. And it seems like foolishness, but it's the foolish things Paul wrote 
that God has used to confound those who consider themselves to be wise. And so at first, maybe we tried a little bit. You ever been there? I'll try this Jesus thing a little bit. I'll, I'll go to church for a while and I'll, I'll pray some and I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then guess what? It doesn't work. Just like Lightning McQueen. You sort of halfway get into it and you turn to the right and guess what? There off you go. Well, that didn't work. You been there? You know people like that? Oh, church didn't work for me. Jesus doesn't work for me. I prayed and nothing changed. Maybe it's because we really didn't go for it. Maybe then there's a time in your life, maybe you're there right now, and I pray that you are, where we get to the point where our way isn't working anymore, and we realize that, and we say, you know what? I'm not going to continue down this path anymore. And as the movie progressed, that's what Lightning McQueen had to do. He had to finally really go for it. And this morning, my prayer is that you will finally really go for it with the Lord. That you will say, no more just sort of halfway turning to the right to go left. No, no, no. I know that it's backward according to this world, and I know that it doesn't make sense to anybody, but I'm going all in. I'm pushing everything to the center of the table, and I'm really going for it. I'm going to lean into Jesus as hard as I possibly can with my whole being, and I guarantee you what you'll find is that he's been right all along. Just like Lightning McQueen found out that Doc Hudson was right at the end of the movie, you'll find that Jesus has been right all along. And a halfway commitment to it, guess what, will always not work. Won't work. Because you won't get Jesus. You'll get some church things and you'll, you'll get some feel-good stuff occasionally, but you won't get him and he's the whole point. And so my prayer as we look at the scripture this morning is that you'll lean in completely. As we wrap up 2 Corinthians today, that's really the theme, is the idea that what seems foolish actually gives us wisdom, that we gain wisdom through leaning into what the world calls foolishness. And you don't gain without the pain. We've been talking about that. And you don't find wisdom without leaning into what seems to be foolish. So look at it. The last chapter of 2 Corinthians, if you've got your Bible handy, or one there in the pew, you can follow along this morning. If you're using a Bible app, if you've got that on your smartphone or your tablet and you're using that, I'll be reading this morning from what's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. They've updated that recently, by the way, and they've dropped the Holman out of that. If you've seen that, it's just a Christian Standard Bible now. And there are some things that are a little bit different, just a side note, but that's the one that we use in here. And so we'll be in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to look this morning at the entire chapter, and we'll just kind of hit the highlights, and, and then we'll close today, as you can see, with the Lord's Supper. Look at it in verse 1, chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. This is the third time I am coming to you. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word will be confirmed. I gave warning and I give warning as when I was present the second time. So now I am while I am absent to those who sin before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. He is not weak toward you, but powerful among you. In fact, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. For we also are weak in him, yet toward you we live with, with him by God's power. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize for yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? And I hope that you will recognize that we are not failing the test. Now we pray to God that you, will, that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right even though we may appear to fail. For we are not able to do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. In fact, we rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. 
We also pray pray for this, your maturity. That is why I'm writing these things while absent, that when I am there, I will not use severity in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Be restored. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. So he's closing the letter. And he's planning to visit for a third time. The first time was to start the church. The second time was a very painful visit that didn't go so well. And now will be this third time to make sure that things have gotten straightened out in the church. The letter that he's written that we know as 2 Corinthians has been very personal, very emotional. In fact, it's the most personal emotional of all of Paul's letters. And, and he's, he's pleased with many of the folks in the church. He's heard some good things about what they've been doing and how, how they've, they've turned back to the Lord and so on and so forth. But not all of them have done that. And so he's still got some issues to deal with. And so it's kind of like when you go into a place and they've hired you to come in and, hey, we've got some problems here and we need you to straighten them out. Some of you have probably been hired to do that. You take over a, a position of management or whatever and you're in there and, hey, uh, you know, we've got some issues with this and then people don't get along and they're doing the wrong things and they're not on board with company policy and a company mission and you're you're in there trying to clean it up and you get an idea a little bit of what Paul's been going through. And that's what his goal has been. And so the whole time he's been writing to them about what it takes to do that sort of thing. What does a spiritual leader really look like? They had rejected Paul. They had said, ah, you're not impressive enough. You, you don't have enough money and you don't speak well enough and you don't have a big enough following. And we want that kind of pastor. We want that kind of spiritual leader. That's who we want is somebody who's really popular in the world. And that's, that's what they wanted. So they looked at Paul and said, ah, you're not much. And so they said, ah, we don't want to listen to you anymore. But in doing so, in rejecting Paul, they were in danger of rejecting God's message through Paul. And so, as a result, Paul had to defend himself and his right to speak on behalf of God, not so that he personally would get vindication, but so that they would hear the message of God through him. And so that's what his letter has largely focused on. And in closing here, he gives some final thoughts, I think, from which we can see some of the wisdom of God, though it might look initially like foolishness to the world. And so Paul was all about that so-called foolishness of God. I'm going to give you three aspects of this this so-called foolishness that really in God's eyes is wisdom, but it's going to seem really weird in the eyes of everybody else. So here's how to turn right to go left, if you will. All right. First thing is live out the cross and the resurrection. Live out the cross and the resurrection. Verses 1 through 4, he talks about there's a third time I'm coming to you. I've given you warning. Now I'm coming. I won't be lenient, he says. Uh, But at the same time, I understand that that you're wanting to see Christ speak through me. So I'm going to demonstrate Jesus' weakness, but also his power. Look at verse 4. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. He talks about the humility of the cross. Jesus being crucified in weakness. Now he's not talking about spiritual weakness weakness, but human weakness. Jesus submitted himself. Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter two. If you want a great summary on it, Philippians chapter two is it. He wrote about what Jesus did, that though he was in heaven, exalted for all eternity and glorified with with God, the father, he left heaven, took on human flesh and submitted himself to obedience to the Lord, even to death on a cross. And so Jesus had a body that could physically die. And that's what Paul is talking about. He was crucified in a weak physical state, certainly not spiritual, but all of our bodies, you know this, 
some of you got up this morning, had to pop several things and so on and so forth and move around. You got a weak physical body, right? Eventually it gives out. Even the strongest person eventually will give out. And that's what Paul is talking about. Jesus was crucified in weakness. So he's talking about the humility of the cross, that he humbled himself in obedience, sacrificing, submitting, surrendering to the Lord. And all that seems a little bit foolish, doesn't it? All of it is willingly limiting yourself, and in Jesus' case, dying for people who don't deserve it. Paul wrote that the cross is a stumbling block to those who were Jewish, and it was foolishness to those who were not Jewish. So to everybody, it's kind of weird, he says. He says it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they looked and they, th- they thought in the Old Testament that their Messiah was going to come and take over everybody. He wouldn't be tortured and killed, that he would torture and kill. That's what he was going to do. And then he dies? Uh, I, can't, oh, I can't go there. And that's why many Jews today still do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because they say there's no way our Messiah would die. Not, certainly, certainly that's not going to be the case. And then the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, Paul called them, the non-Jews looked at Jesus and the cross and then they looked looked at Christians and said, so you believe in a guy who is the savior ruler of the world and he died. Hmm. He was crucified. You know, that's, that's the most shameful way that the Romans could kill somebody. Yeah, right. They say. And so to the Jews and to the non-Jews, Paul said, it's all kind of foolishness, but that's what we are to live on. It is the humility of the cross, obedience, that brought for us salvation. Understand that if Jesus not humbled himself to death on a cross, that we could not be forgiven of our sins. And so even though it seems like foolishness, Paul said, that's the wisdom of God. But Paul said, not only will I live out the humility of the cross by becoming weak if I need to, but I'm also going to live out the boldness of the resurrection. I'm going to live with humility and with gentleness, but also with boldness. He says, I'm coming to you and I'm not going to be lenient. He said, look, y'all, y'all got some things you need to get straight. You ever had to do that? You ever go to somebody and say, look, this ain't right. This is not going to happen anymore. And that's what Paul was saying. And based upon the boldness of the resurrection, the fact that Jesus was alive, Paul could go to them and say, I, I, you know, I, I'm confident in this. I know I'm on the side of the truth. And if they're looking for proof that Jesus was speaking through Paul, they're going to see it in his humility, but also in his boldness, both the cross and the resurrection at work in Paul's life. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are to live that out. We're not just, just to be little meek, humble, no, just walk over me kind of folks. Yeah, that's part of the deal to be humble, but it's a, it's a humble strength. And the fact that we are also bold, knowing that we are on the side of the truth. And Paul said, God's power is about to be demonstrated through me, both in humility and in boldness. And so living out the cross and the resurrection is a life of humility and boldness, service and confidence all the time. Jesus died in humility and sacrifice and was raised again to give us boldness and courage. And that's the life that he has called us to. If you want to know what Christians are to be, they're to be humble and bold all at the same time. That's who Jesus was. Humble and bold. When the, when the apostles, by the way, when they saw the resurrected Christ and, and, and they weren't exactly sure what was going to happen and then they saw him, do you know what? They were forever humble and forever bold at that point. It was never going to be about them, but they were never going to back down. They were always going to live for Jesus, never shirking away from it, but it wasn't about them. And you see what happens through the book of Acts, and of course in the lives of the apostles, and then of course Paul as an apostle as well. But anyway, it's living out. That's foolishness, it seems. You're going to live based upon this cross and resurrection. Absolutely. 
Humility and boldness. Secondly, a so-called aspect of, or aspect of the so-called foolishness is what Paul alludes to in verses 5 through 10, and that is to love your enemies. So it was cool so far when I was talking, because, all right, I can be humble. Yeah, sure, that's cool. Jesus was humble, humbled himself. Hey, I like that boldness part. Man, I got some stuff I need to take care of, so, man, I need to be bold. And this loving your enemy stuff, though, dude, that's a little different. Check it out in verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize that Jesus is in you? And then what he says here, I hope that you'll recognize that we're not failing the test. At first, it might seem that he's just kind of kind of hammering them. Like, you guys, you know what? Stop looking at me, man. Look at yourself. Go look at yourself in the mirror for a change. You ever said that to somebody? You know what? I'm, stop. Quit, quit criticizing me. Look what you do. It can seem like that's what Paul is doing, but that's not really his whole point. He goes on and he says, I hope that you recognize we're not failing the test. Now look in verse 7. We pray to God that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass the test. And Paul's saying, so that, oh, we get credit for what you do. But that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. For we are not able to do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. In fact, look at it in verse 9. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray for this, your maturity. This is why I'm writing. And he goes on and he tells them, we're for you. Now who he's writing to, by the way, are people that had absolutely destroyed his reputation. They didn't like him. I mean, what would you do in that situation? You're wrapping up this letter. You say, oh, by the way, I know the Psalms. And, and I'm calling down fire from heaven. You better pray to God that it doesn't happen. Because I'm calling it down. You ever done that on somebody, by the way? You ever called down fire from heaven? I've done it. It doesn't work. I tried. <laughs> it's in the Bible, man, you know? It'd be like Elijah. I'm going to call it down on the mountain. Apparently, you know, God's not answering my prayers, though, you know, in that way. But, but Paul didn't call down fire from heaven, did he? he? He handled the situation. But you see in these verses, he's saying, test yourselves. Make sure that you understand that Jesus lives in you. We want you, he says, to do nothing wrong. We want you to do what's right. We want you to, to grow and we're willing to be weak even if that's what it takes for you to be strong. We want you to be fully mature in Christ. Our desire, he says, is to build you up. Writing to people that he should have blasted. People that should have been loyal to him but discredited him and criticized him and, and turned on him. And his only desire for them is that they grow in Jesus. He wants them to have genuine faith. I mean, think about it. Like I said, our natural reaction is anything but that. It's not to pray for those who are our enemies. It's certainly not to love them in any way or nurture them or pray that they become spiritually mature. We just want to call them out and talk about them anonymously on Facebook. That's what we want to do. I know none of you have ever done that here, okay? And I don't, I don't look around during the week to see who in the church is talking about somebody anonymously on Facebook. I promise you that. Only a little. <laughs> Facebook, by the way, gives me some really, really, really good sermon material. 
and I make sure that it's anonymous, but and I ain't talking about some of y'all, but but man, it's good. And so there's some people on there. This has nothing to do with sermon, but there's some people on there who I can't stop. I, 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 there's some people that I've that I've unfollowed because okay, you just you're filling up my timeline with a bunch of memes and nonsense, whatever. But there are some people who I mean their their diaries on Facebook are so good that I have to use it in sermons at some point. I can't unfollow them because then I don't get the material anyway. So if that's you, I appreciate it. But, uh, but anyway, so Paul is saying, love your enemy. Paul is demonstrating, here's how to love your enemy. I want what's best for you. That's foolishness. There is nobody but Jesus who's going to tell you to love your enemies. Nobody. That's radical and it's different. Do you know where that comes from? Listen, even if you're not a Jesus person, you can be an atheist and you will say, well, it's probably, it's probably not good to totally retaliate and get back at everybody. Do you know where that comes from? Nowhere but Jesus. He's the only one. Nowhere else. There's nobody. And he says, and Paul lives out, love your enemies and pray for those, he says in Matthew 5, who persecute you, who are against you. And I wonder how we're doing with that. As we see Paul's example, writing to people who didn't like him, writing to people who had made his life miserable to the point where he's overwhelmed emotionally from the stress of it all. And he simply says, I want what is best for you. I want you to love the Lord and grow with him. How are we doing? We loving our enemies, praying for them. Yep, calling down fire. That's how I pray. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Are we praying for them, really? Do we want God's best for them? It all seems foolish, but that's the heart of God. It's the heart and the wisdom of God. And then, and then a third aspect of this so-called foolishness of God is what Paul highlights in the closing verses of this letter. And, and, and I want you to, to see this. And that is to, to let the kingdom of God rule in you. Look at verses 11 through 13. Here's how he closes it. He says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Be restored. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of peace, the God of love, rather, and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. This is a benediction that I believe is not just tacked on at the end just because Paul needs to say some nice things. I think he's wrapping it up in a way that demonstrates that the kingdom of God had ruled through him, that God had total control of his life, and that's what he wants for the Corinthian church, a group of people that really weren't under the control of God completely. How can you end on such a loving and positive note for people who have not treated you well? God rules your heart, that's how. The kingdom of God has invaded your life and you now live for Him. And that's what Paul is doing. That's what he's saying to them. That's what he wants them to do. And he says all these things, rejoice, be restored, be encouraged, be the same mind, be at peace. None of those things are possible, by the way, if God does not rule in your heart. Think about it. How can you rejoice even when the situation doesn't call for it unless Jesus rules in your heart? How can you become mature or, or he says here, be restored? How can you have that happen? Unless Jesus rules in your heart. How can you be encouraged when the skies are dark? Unless Jesus and his kingdom rule in you. How can you be of the same mind? Be unified. we got all kinds of different people in this church, by the way. 
We got Republicans. We got Democrats. We got Independents. We got folks who don't want anybody to know what they are. That's the way we got it here. We got all kinds of all over the spectrum. How can that? How can a church be unified? Be of the same mind? Well, Jesus rules. That's how. How can you be at peace when everything around you and inside of you seems to not be? Well, you let the peace of Jesus Christ rule in your hearts and minds. And interestingly, all along he's calling them brothers and then challenging them to greet one another in a way that only family was to greet one another. You realize that in the Roman Empire it would have been illegal to call anybody a brother who was not truly your blood brother. That's the way it was. Paul says, we didn't worry about any of that junk. Y'all are my brothers and sisters. Greet one another, he says, with a holy kiss, just like family members would. Love on one another like family. That, that only comes as the kingdom of God rules in and through us. Life among Christians was to be totally different. Ruled by the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus said, in me and through me. And that's how Paul lived and that's what he wanted for the Corinthians. And so as we close this series, we close this letter, I wonder where it is as we talk about the kingdom of God ruling in you, where is it you've been rejecting his rule? Where is it you've said, no, 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 Lord, you ain't going there in my life. I'll give you this other stuff, but you ain't going there. I wonder where you've told him no. In what ways have you avoided the, the pain of spiritual growth? And you say, ah, no, I'm not, no, 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 I'm good right here where I am. Where does Jesus need to take over? I wonder where you'd say, you know what, Lord Jesus, you, you take me through the pain so that I can gain more of you.